The following audio is from The Well. We are a church that is committed to gospel growth, family formation, and missional engagement in Hastings, Nebraska. More information about The Well can be found at www.thewellhastings.com. We hope the message you are about to hear will spur you on to growing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be formed as a follower of Jesus, and to be engaged in the mission of Jesus to seek and to save the lost within a yard of hell. Let's just quickly bow our heads and let's dive in. Father, thank you uh, for letting us come to your to your house to be with brothers and sisters in Christ, to worship you. And Lord, I pray that it was in spirit and in truth. Lord, I pray that uh, today that you prepared our hearts to receive your word and that you would hide me behind your cross and that you would have a message for every man, woman, and child still in this room. We ask your blessing in the name of Jesus. Amen. Brothers and sisters, um, we glorify God by making disciples of all nations. I, I really want you to catch that phrase. We glorify God by making disciples of all nations. And we are studying, you guys have been studying the book of Acts, where that is a big theme, right? You guys remember that? You did Acts 13 last week? I, I asked a few people and they were not sure what, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> And so we're, we're in chapter 14. And, and this morning, I hope you catch that truth, that we glorify God by making disciples of all nations. And I hope that you kind of catch that as we, as we zoom through an entire chapter. I don't, I, man, I told Joe, I said, I've, I don't know that I would have ever preached a whole chapter of, of Acts unless you asked me to, because there's just a lot of stuff here, right? But just to make it more complicated, I want you to get your Bibles and grab your, grab your book. I hope you got your Bible with you. And I want you to kind of turn with me to, to chapter 13, because we're going to kind of set the tone for what's happening in 14. Kind of refresh your memory. In chapter 13, it says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets, teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who they called Niger, Lucius from Cyrene, Maminia, ma, man, Amanamen, I always have a hard time with that. It's like a tongue twister name. A lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set them apart, Barnabas and Saul, for the work that I've called them. And so then... Fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So that's the foundation of what we're going to read about in chapter 14. The church at Antioch was well known in the book of Acts as the church that broke down barriers as well. I hope you, you, you caught that a little bit last week. It, it is the church where not only Jews could hear the gospel, but also Greeks. They were all worshiping. And I want you to notice that worship and mission go together. Worship 
and mission go together, when a person, when a people, when a church is gripped by the glory of God, it will give their lives to something greater. When people are gripped by worship, folks, they're going to give their lives to proclaiming the gospel. When we really get a sense of what God is doing, And if we're really moved by God in worship, worship will not lead us to something very selfish or self-directed or self-centered. It is going to lead us to giving our lives to proclaiming the gospel to the nations. So the Spirit says to the church, please send out Paul and Barnabas. And what does the church say? Reluctantly, yes, right? No, they, they, they say yes. And, and here they are worshiping God. A people, evidently a group of people who had said, whatever God wants, I will do. Wherever God leads, I will go. Whatever God wants me to do, I will do. You call, God, and and I'm ready. I'm going to go. How about you? And so the church is willing to send not just some peripheral guys. I mean, these these are in the list, right, of the big leaders at the church. These were their best men. I, I think their loss would be felt quickly. Paul and Barnabas, I mean, Barnabas was... An encourager. Can you imagine the guy who always pumps you up every Sunday? He is gone. And that's Barnabas. And so Barnabas and Paul, they say yes to the call. And so they had to say yes too, not only to church. Can you think about this with me for a moment? Here was a great church at Antioch. This is like an amazing group of people. People where Paul and Barnabas had learned to love and care and be loved by other people. And man, I'm sure they felt connected in so many ways. And it's not easy to say goodbye to friends. But we don't negotiate with the Spirit of God. We just follow him. That's what we see here in chapter 13. The Spirit calls, the church confirms, the Spirit says set them apart, and they say yes. The Spirit setting them apart, the whole church is involved in the setting of them apart. As we see in this, we kind of almost get this picture of an ordination, they lay hands. It's kind of saying, we are connected with these dudes. We're affirming that God is calling. We're tied to them in prayer, in giving, and loving them. And, and we're not going to forget them. We're part of them. That's, that's that connection of laying hands on them. And I, I hope you catch that picture. And they send them off, Paul and Barnabas, and a guy named John Mark. Have you ever heard that name? A guy named John Mark who a little bit later in chapter 13 bails, which is another example of what I just said earlier. It is not easy 
to do what God wants us to do. But here the team goes, equipped with the word of God, armed with the gospel to do whatever God has called them to do. And and what I want to show you is something very simple, not easy. Missionaries need churches. Missionaries need churches to send them. And in Acts chapter 13, verse 13, we see John Mark leaving, and here we have just the two guys going out on their first missionary journey. This, this is Paul's first mission. If you've always heard that, he had three missionary journeys. This is his first missionary journey, preaching the gospel, proclaiming the good news to places that had never heard the gospel before. Now we get to chapter 14. You're probably going, well, we just are rehashing the same thing that Joe talked about last week. So now we're up to 14. I've set the, the, the groundwork, rem- reminded you about everything Joe had said earlier. And now we're here. And in verse 1, it says, Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. And so here we see they enter into Iconium and they face persecution again if we were to read the rest of those seven verses they face the threat of stoning and in Acts 13 and 14 we see two guys consistently courageous in their attitude as apostles in their loyalty to Christ regardless thick or thin they're they're in they're in it They are great models for us this morning. Paul and Barnabas against the world, you might say, right? They were brothers. And chapter 14 depicts Paul and Barnabas completing the first of three missionary journeys, traveling through Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, and then returning back to their home base in Antioch in Syria. The gospel leads believers to pray, to fast, to worship, to give, and to go. And that moves us because of the urgency of eternity. Do you catch that? The urgency of eternity. Eternal life is at stake. How many of you have ever heard of the 1040 window? Just one? 1040 window? The 1040 window is a little window from, from uh, basically the west, the west of Africa all the way to Japan. It is the hardest places in the world to share the gospel. In fact, 97% of the world's lostness 97% of the world's lostness is within that 1040 window. And only 4%, only 4% of gospel workers are full-time in that section of the world. I share that because eternal life is at stake. And so here we see 
In Acts 14, let me reread that again for you. And I'm going to read all the way through verse 7. It says, Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue, and they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained there for a long time, (laughs) speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness in the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and they fled to Lystra and Derbe and the cities of Lycatia and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. We see the missionaries go to Iconium. Iconium is this ancient city. Some say it's older than Damascus. In the dim past, I, I kind of feel like I'm, I'm doing a, a scene from a comic book of Conan the Barbarian in, in telling you this. So with that setting, think about what I'm getting ready to say. In the dim past, it had a king named Nanakus. And that phrase, since the days of Nanakus, didn't that sound so Conan? In the days of Nanakus, became kind of this idea from the days of the beginning of time, the days of Nanakus. He was supposedly one of their first rulers. And it's so far out that the Roman put up a garrison there. It was their furthest away kind of garrison. And yet, because it was so far out, the Iconium's people were still resistant to the Roman authority. And so they had their their citizen kind of rulers, a council of citizens called the Demas. And they held themselves a little standoffish from the Romans that were there in the garrison. The missionaries, as they came into the city, you can see it, they, they had some instant success. People heard the gospel and they got saved and a lot of people, both Jews and Gentiles, both. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual to the Jewish synagogue. And there they spoke so effectively The gospel started working and moving in people's... This was no bland, boring gospel. I mean, can you imagine Paul just preaching? Woo! And people being convicted of sin. It it was so amazing that God started doing things just, just... just amazing stuff. There were miracles and healings going on in, in the midst, just confirming that this gospel was true. It's amazing to think about this. And, and, they, and, and I want you to catch what's happening here. Did you, did you catch it? Things, trouble started to come, right? And what was the response of the disciples, the apostles? When trouble came, they did what? They stayed longer. 
That's right. When trouble comes, they stuck with it. They stayed a little longer. I told you it's not easy. It's hard work. But they stayed a little longer. You know, John Wesley, I love this story. John Wesley encountered a village bully when, when he was doing ministry as well. There was a guy that knew Wesley really well, knew the gospel that Wesley preached, and, and he didn't like him. And so one day they were meeting on a little narrow road and, and the, the bully stayed right in the center. And Wesley just pulls off into the ditch. And as he, as he comes by, this bully looks at him and he says, I never give way to idiots. To which Wesley, by the way, was five foot tall. He was a short little guy. And he said, well, I always do. <laughs> And that's exactly what Paul does, right? Because here's what happens. If you think about what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 9, Paul wrote, we were hard, by the way, I'm reading this from the Phillips translation because I think it makes it clear what Paul was really thinking. It says, I was hard-pressed on all sides, but we, never, we were, are never frustrated. We're puzzled, but we're never in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not deserted. We are knocked down but we're never knocked out. Amen? And so finally it appears like a wise decision to leave town because they, they get word that trouble's coming. I, I, you got to think about this, right? Paul, Paul and Barnabas were brave, but they're not foolish. They're born again, but not, they weren't born yesterday. The, the Lord protects his children but I think God still wants us to have a little common sense, right? And so the missionaries decided it's time for us to go. And they must have felt a little discouragement in that. Because I know how I've felt when I've been in places and I've been on, up, up against opposition. And they must have felt a little discouragement. But Paul and Barnabas moved into a more wild place now called Lystra. Now, I, I, don't, I couldn't find a lot about Lystra. It's an interesting place. It's a frontier outpost. S Caesar Augustus made it a Roman colony about 6 BC. So now you've got some context. It's kind of, kind of back there when Jesus was being born kind of thing. The establishment was the easternmost fortified city of Galatia. And it might have had kind of this Old West kind of feel. People, people all probably carried their guns on their hips. They were a little tough. The women were tougher. Kind of like barbarians. I told you, this is almost like a barbarian story. In fact, they were uneducated for the most part, and they spoke their own language, their own dialect, which is kind of cool as you start th thinking about this story. So I, I want you to follow along as we read this. It says, now in Lystra, in verse 8, by the way, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet, and he was crippled from birth, and he had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul looked intently at him, seeing that he, that he had faith to be made well. 
And he said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang, to his, sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw Paul had done this, they lifted up their voices saying, in, in Lycronian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas, they called Zeus. And Paul, they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was on the entrance to the city, brought ox and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostle Barnabas, the, the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring good news, and you should turn from these vain things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he says, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. What a crazy group of people, right? I mean, think about what's happening here in this passage in Lystra. You see, this is an interesting story because the people, these half-barbarian people, have this man that probably lays around, his family probably drops him off there, he begs for, for money, and he's listening. As Paul stands up in the center of town and proclaims the gospel, and he's listening and he's hearing. Preachers know when you're paying attention, by the way. <laughs> and Paul notices, here's a man of great faith. So much faith. I'll bet, I'll bet the Spirit would heal him today. He was listening to Paul. Paul directly looked at him and saw that faith in his eyes. It reminds me a little bit of the story in Mark chapter 2. Do you remember that story of four guys, four men who, who see a paralytic along the side of the road and they know, they know. You know what? If we can bring this guy and get him anywhere close to Jesus, something good's going to happen, right? And so they get to the, the house, whatever, I don't know whose house for sure it really was, but they get there, and the door's completely jammed full of people, so I think they were a little redneck, because they go, hey, I don't know about you, let's go tear the roof off. <laughs> and that's what they did. And, and they, they dropped that, that paralytic man, down right in front of Jesus. And, and, and can you imagine the scene? Jesus sitting there on, on, on his pallet, watching dirt kind of falling on everybody's head. Because that's what would happen. You know that, right? Dirt's going to be little straw hay on everybody's heads. And Jesus just sitting there going, this is going to be good. <laughs> and he looks up at those four friends and he says, because there's no dialogue in this passage, by the way. No, no dialogue. And I can just imagine Jesus looking up at those four Four, four men and said, good job, guys. 
You did whatever it takes. And what does he say? He says, you're healed. No. He says to him, your sins are forgiven. Isn't that cool? He didn't ask for his sins to be forgiven. But Jesus knew what his greatest need was, his sins to be forgiven. And so he heals that man after that. But it's an amazing story because he looks at the religious leaders that are still in the room and he knows what they're thinking. He knows what we're thinking this morning too. And he talks right to them and he says, which is easier for me to say your sins are forgiven or to tell this man rise up and walk? To show you that I have authority to forgive sins on earth, he looks at the man and he says, okay, guy, stand up, take your bed and go home. And he does. It's kind of a cool story because I can just imagine him. This is the guy who couldn't get into the building without the roof being opened, right? And now everybody kind of parts the sea of of humanity, and he dances out of the building. Amen? Paul does something very similar here. As Paul's preaching publicly, he sees this lame man whose interest, the willing gaze, indicate that God's grace is at work in his heart. Paul saw this man's response and followed the impulse of the Holy Spirit, and he heals him. And now Paul had the undivided attention of everybody in the room as this guy dances off in front of them. I, I, th I think this is kind of an interesting story. I, I can almost see this guy going, look, mom, no cane. <laughs> and here Paul is and Barnabas and everything seems like it's going really good but it's not. Let, let me fill you in on this. There's a big problem. These, these half-crazy barbarian Lyconians, they have an ancient legend, kind of like Conan the Barbarian stuff, right? They have a story, and it goes like this. Zeus and Hermes came down from heaven into the hill country surrounding these people, seeking lodging, and they, they went to thousands of homes, and no one would take them in until finally they come to a humble little college, college, cottage made of, of, of hay and straw and a little bit of wood, and there was an old elderly couple, poor elderly people living inside, Philemon and Bacchus. And they freely welcomed them into their little humble abode. They, they made them the best food they had and fed them as best they could. And in appreciation, Zeus and Hermes, not real gods, by the way. I, this is not, I'm just giving you background, okay? Just in case you're like, what is he talking about? All this for. I'm giving you the background and why they, why they react this way. And so they transformed at their death. They, they made them priest and priestess. They, they made their, their house into a, a, a temple. And, and at their death, 
the story goes that they immortalized them by making them a giant oak tree and a great linden tree. Do you guys know what a linden tree is? They're the prettiest, coolest trees. I just always, when I, when I read that, I thought, oh, that's cool. Those are like the singing trees. Did you know that? Because they have little flowers, and all the bugs come to the flowers, and if you stand underneath a linden tree, it sings. It's kind of fun. So can you imagine these great big trees there? And what the gods did do was destroyed everybody else's house. So these poor Lyconians, they, they're determined, we're not going to let this happen again. And so let's have a party for these two. The gods have come to us in human form, they said. And Barnabas, they called Zeus. Paul, they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, at the temple just on the edge of town, brought in this big ox, and they made little flower things on, put on his horns, and was going to sacrifice with the whole community. And the crazy part, when these Lyconians get excited, they don't speak in a language that anybody else understands. They speak in their little dialect. And so Paul and Barnabas have no idea what's happening. They, they, they think maybe things are going good, but then they see the ox and the priest coming in, and they go, oh, no, this is bad news. And they didn't know because they didn't understand their dialect. And so what do they do? They rush out and they tear their clothes and they say, guys, I got 10 fingers, 10 toes. I'm just like you. Don't do this. And then he starts to preach. Kind of, kind of sad because it was a really good sermon. Did you, did you enjoy it? I mean, I thought it was a really good sermon to preach to pagans kind of setting the stage to nature, things that they would understand, but they didn't get to the gospel as they were preaching. And even with the words that they shared, they could, they could barely keep them from sacrificing that beast. The apostles had, had been locked out of Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, as heretics, they, they are now being deified in Lystra. And it's, it's difficult to say which is worse, to be deified or to be labeled a heretic. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, the, Lys the Lystrans, do you call them Lystrines? <laughs> Their misplaced uh, praise kept kept the gospel from being understood for the vast majority of the people there. Now, these people wanted to know God. I really think they did. They wanted to know God, but they wanted to know God on their own terms. I think that's a lesson that you and I should catch. Paul and Barnabas never got to explain the incarnation because the people were determined to keep them within the boundaries of their religious presuppositions. And I think today... Christ is often captive to men's presuppositions. Lloyd Ogilvie said it this way, when Jesus was born, there was no room in the inn. But today, 
We not only have room in the inn, but we have a penthouse suite away from the reality. Jesus is a VIP to be honored, but not really believed or followed. In America, he is a custom, not the true Christ. A captured hero of a casual, civil, religious identity, but not Lord of our lives. And you know what that's called? At least in my, dic- my dictionary, that's called idolatry. When you make Jesus into some other person than he really is, that's idolatry. And I think we do that all the time. We, we keep him safe. I mean, think about Jesus riding in on that donkey colt into Jerusalem, right? You remember that? And everybody's going, Hosanna, Hosanna, woo! Throwing out their coats. They're, they're getting excited about Jesus coming to town. And these same people are the same ones who yell just a few days later when Jesus reveals who he really is. They go, crucify him, crucify him. And that's what I think we do, folks. Almost everyone is happy to receive Jesus, if he's just a great man, a good teacher, but when he's Lord, that's, that's a little harsh. That means I can't do what I want to do if he's Lord. And, and, and there's another side to this, too, that you see in this story, and it's when we elevate, we elevate preachers and teachers and stuff like that. <laughs> you know, we want to make men and women, rather than God, our sense of security. Let me take this against John Piper. I love John Piper, by the way. Let me check this against John MacArthur. I wish you'd check it against what Jesus said. I hope that's not sacrilegious here. I'm, I'm just saying that's what we do, right? We elevate these guys. We elevate singers. Like, like Laura Dangle is like... Oh, she speaks the truth all the time. Uh, it, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you. We have our Christian Parthenons sitting on the hill. I thought about putting a picture of it up there, all lit up at night. It's very beautiful, by the way. And so are our churches. Our Christian matinee idols. And we must, with God's help, really examine what we think and what we do and how we are really worshiping this morning and who we are worshiping. Ourselves, our favorite preacher, our Christian entertainer, or do we worship and serve the Lord Jesus Christ? But now they have a different problem, right? Now quickly the crowd changed. And then some of the Jews from Antioch and Iconium started winning over the crowd. And what we see here is that Paul is stoned and drug out of town, left for dead. Where is that? In verse 19. Did I read that? I've read this so many times this week. I almost feel like I've read it already. I didn't read it, did I? Hey, but the Jews came, I'm in verse 19, it says, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium 
And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city. And the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. Isn't that cool? Can you just imagine, Paul? Stoning, by the way, is a really gruesome thing. I mean, I've had bicycle accidents when I was a kid. I thought I would be evil Knievel, and I built a ramp, and it collapsed on me. Do you ever do that? <laughs> and I skinned my leg, uh, my face, everything. It was gruesome. It was like I stoned myself on, on concrete, right? And, and just imagine, that's exactly what happened. But it was much, much worse. He was like in a comatose state. They drug him out of town. They thought he was dead. They didn't want him anywhere around anybody else because he would start stinking, right? They drug him out of town. And as soon as the brothers, just think about it. You guys are all right up on your motorcycles. And you're going, man, this doesn't look good. And as soon as you ride up and you get off your bikes and you gather around and you're like, this is bad. I guess we better carry him into town to bury him. He opens one eye, then he opens another, and he jumps up to his feet, and he goes, there's no funeral today. Let's get out of here. And they go back to town, and it's like nothing ever happened. But, but think about how gruesome he must have looked. I mean, he's covered in dirt and blood. I, I wonder while he was being stoned, if he had any flashbacks to the day that he stood and watched Stephen being stoned and he helped. What a witness. Can you imagine walking into town looking like he did? Better than a thousand sermons, guys. Better, better than a thousand sermons is you living a life that is sold out for Jesus, ready to get up and do it again after getting a whooping. Huh. What an example. By the way, did you guys notice this? In these passages, Barnabas is called an apostle. Did you catch that? Now, I believe there were these special men who, who were called apostles. And they were, they were hanging out with Jesus. They saw Jesus. They knew Jesus' teaching. And they were appointed by Jesus himself to carry out the mission. But in this passage, it's clear that Luke, this word apostle means sent ones. And so it's clear that these men... These two men, Paul, of course, he could be used in both groups because God chose him as an apostle to the Gentiles. But it, it's clear that Luke saw them as being sent ones. They had an apostolic sent calling where they were to go to people who had never heard the gospel. And what an example these apostles were as they kept preaching this is called church planting preaching. As they revisited the same cities they got thrown out of, they preached the good news in Derby, and they won many people to Jesus and made many, many disciples. We see a pattern here in chapter 14. 
for discipleship. Discipleship. First, they preached the gospel. And, and, and let me kind of finish reading the rest, because in verse 21 it says, and when they had preached the gospel so that cities and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And in verse 24, it says, when they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word to Perga, they went down to Atalia. And from there, they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done for and with them, and how he had opened the doors of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained there no little time with the disciples. Here's what I want you to catch, is the model that they set for us of what discipleship looks like. A discipleship that leads to multiplication. And I think that's really what God desires for his church. Disciples who make disciples, who make disciples, who make disciples. Multiplying themselves. And so here's what, he, what I see them doing. First, they preach. Go to the, that next slide. Because I want you to see this. They preached the gospel and made disciples. It says that right here in this passage, right? The same cities they'd been mistreated in, the same cities they'd been beaten in. Can you imagine how hard that is to go back to a place where you got whooped? But they did. By the power of the Holy Spirit and for a love of Jesus, and I think there was a love that God gave them for the people that mistreated them even. And God opened their hearts and then he opened the doors for them to go back. And we need to be equipped to share our faith. You need to be equipped to share your faith, folks. And if God has you here, our response to God's grace should be to proclaim the gospel here in Hastings. Amen? Did, did, did I hear? Did you hear me? If God has you here, you should be equipped and you should be proclaiming the gospel right here in Hastings. That's where he's got you today. You need to leave in this place and tell them people about Jesus. Secondly, they, are, they strengthened the believers in every one of those towns they went to. Keep the faith, keep the faith, keep, keep it up. So they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, and they strengthened the disciples, encouraging them to re remain true to their faith. And what an affirming affirmation of Paul's gospel this is. He, he was not one of these uh, prosperity gospel preachers. Did you notice what he said? 
He says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul, writing in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, he says, My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch, at Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This comes from the mouth of the apostle. Jesus said the same thing in John chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before. Knowing all of that, brothers and sisters, Christ calls us not to a mamby-pamby faith, but to a bold Christian faith that is unwilling to be satisfied with anything less but to tell every single man, woman, and child in Hastings about Jesus. And we can't do that without heavenly help. But there's a third thing here. Paul goes and he organizes the church. This requires discipleship. The natural outcome of discipleship is multiplication. Now, this is just a little side note. It's not in the passages, and I'm not going to take you back to all these verses. But this is where, Lystra is where Paul met this couple, this grandma and grandma, mom and grandma, Lois and Eunice, who had a, a grandson or a son named Timothy. Timothy would eventually be called to the ministry to join Paul. And churches with the right foundation, Lystra, will be sending and calling missionaries to the nations. Amen? After installing elders in the church, the apostles finally head home to Antioch. And after going through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Pergamum, they went down to Attilia, and then they went back on a boat to Antioch. And we finally see the model fulfilled, full circle, because now they give the report to their sending church. Isn't that fun? I don't know about you, but I love missionary reports. I've talked to people who really hate them. I wonder about their salvation. Man, I love reading biographies of missionaries. If you ain't read one, you need to go grab a couple. Oh, man, nothing more exciting than to hear people, you know, almost get eaten by cannibals. I mean, what better story can you read? <laughs> but here we see, they give this report, and they look back at what God had done. Your faithful prayers, your giving have produced all this fruit, guys. This is what God's done. This is the most, this is most likely the first missionary conference ever in the New Testament in history. And I can just imagine Barnabas right there by Paul's side as Paul goes, do you remember when you guys laid hands on us? And he probably a tear coming out of his eye. Do you, do you remember when you guys laid your hands on us? And we left from here, and we went across to Cyprus, and we preached. 
from Salamis to Paphos. We fought for the soul of the proconsul Sergius Paulus, and Christ won again. Woo! Oh, and we went to Asia Minor, and I got sick there, but God is good. We went to Pergamon and Pamphylia, and, and, and we went to Iconium. I, we got booted out of there, but God's still good. And we went to Lystra. I got, I got stoned. <laughs> oh, can you imagine the story? Woo! And Barnabas is over there just chomping at the bits, going, I want to share. I want to share. And he says, and then we went down to Derby, and we went back up through these cities. We went along the coast, and we just saw God doing such cool stuff. And we went to Pergama. And brothers and sisters, we really want to go back. We really want to go back. But we need your help. I want to tell you, Jen and I are on a new adventure, and we need your help. We want to go back. We want to go to the places where few have heard. I'm going to go to Thailand in January, probably China in March, back to Thailand in the summer, taking different teams with me every time I go because we want people there to have a church like this one. And we want to see churches across the Midwest in rural places like Hastings, Aurora, even little places like Gross should have a gospel witness in it. Amen? And so we, we're going to be working here, trying to mobilize Christians and churches, churches and Christians to take the gospel to their community, to the unreached people groups, by the way, that live all around you because God in his grace has sent the nations to Nebraska of all places and they're two small little groups to, to share the gospel and big plant a humongous church, but couldn't we share the gospel in a small community of Sudanese or Somalis, Hispanics, and help them congregate themselves and have a place of light in them? We need to rethink some of our models and start following this one, brothers and sisters. Go to the next slide. I want to invite you to be on my prayer team. Next slide. There we go. How many of you know how to use this? I've got one in the back on, on, the, on the little thing over here, too. I, if you don't know how to use your phone and do QR codes, this is my QR code. We would love for you to sign up. I'd love to be able to share with you more about our ministry. I would love to invite you to be a part of it, to partner with us, to go with us. I want you to put the well in the story, this story, for a, a, just a second with me. A people worshiping and declaring their delight in the glory of God. Just like you are at Antioch, brothers and sisters, 
just like you are at Antioch. Put yourselves right here in our story, making and receiving disciples here in Hastings, just as if you were in Antioch. And when Hastings from Antioch in, takes the gospel to places, to cities from Lincoln to Kuala Lumpur, we want you, brothers and sisters, to receive what Paul spoke about in Philippians 4.17. Not that we seek a gift, but that we seek the fruit that increases to your credit among the nations as we are glorifying God by making disciples in Nebraska and in Asia and in the 1040 window. Now dig a little deeper into this. I want you to, I want to take us I want to take a deeper step into this passage just for a moment. This morning, it means that you and I need to think about intentionally making disciples. We need to be think. Intentional means that you put a plan together. Intentional means, okay, I've, I've let Joe teach me how to share my faith. Have you done a go how to share your faith, that thing we talked about? And everybody went to it, right? Everybody, everybody did are you serious? Every okay, you got a part of a plan started. It didn't. Are you joking? Are you serious? She's laughing at you. <laughs> you guys got the plan, right? You know how to share your faith. You've made a list of people you want to share your faith with. You've, you're already starting to pray for all those people on your list. Amen? And, and sooner or later, you're going to have to go to them and say, I've been a crummy friend. I haven't talked to you about my best friend. And then just unload on them your testimony. Unload on them the gospel. Even if it goes poorly in your mind, that's the cool thing about God's word. It never comes back void. So put a plan together. Intentional. Be intentional. Make an intentional plan to make disciples, to send disciple makers and you know what will happen? Inevitably, we will multiply churches. We will multiply churches. And this is where we must examine our role this morning. What is your role in the Great Commission? What is my part? And as we intentionally make disciples right here in Hastings, we will inevitably plant more churches somewhere. Disciple-making inevitably leads to church multiplication and that glorifies God. Let's pray. Dear precious Heavenly Father, Lord, I know that there are probably decisions that need to be made. Every man, woman, and child have experienced worship today and I hope that my heart, that their hearts are stirred to the point that we cannot do anything less to proclaim your goodness and your righteousness, to tell others about how much you love us and provided your son to die on the cross for our sins. He rose again and he's alive 
and he's promised to prepare a home for us, and we have a hope that's beyond this world. And I pray, Father, that because we're in awe of your glory, your majesty, and your grace, that we would hold nothing back. Wherever you call us, we'll go. Whatever you want us to do, we'll say yes in Jesus' name.